Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Let's take out our Bibles today and turn to uh, Exodus chapter 3. We started a study in Exodus a few weeks ago, and uh, today we'll be in chapter 3 and 4 together uh, as a church. Maybe it's just me, but when Matt gave that announcement about store-bought candy being donated, I got a little weirded out. Like, are some of you guys bringing non-store-bought, like homemade candy? (laughs) Just like a weird thing. Don't do that. Store-bought. That's what we're looking for. Uh, If you're new here to the church, I'm Nate. I'm the lead pastor here. I'll be in the uh, Welcome Center after service. I'd love to say hello to you uh, there. I I just wanted to take a second, though, and go back to uh, last week. We had a great baptism last Sunday after the 11 o'clock service. We had a great uh, group of seven or eight young and old people who, older people, (laughs) sorry, uh, were baptized and uh, it was just such a blessing, you know, to, to I, I think like being in Exodus, knowing that the big moment of victory for the people of Israel is when they pass through the waters, just kind of seeing afresh people come out of the water in the victory of Jesus was just a powerful thing. So we need to celebrate uh, that. You might not have been able to be there uh, this last week, but it was a, it was a beautiful uh, time. All right, let's pray together for the Shivelys and for our time in the Word. Lord, we come to you today and we commit, Lord, the Shively family into your hands. And we pray, Lord, that you provide for their every need according to your riches in glory. Lord, that you take care of them from start to finish. Lord, you've opened the door and we pray that you'd help them to pass through it. And Lord, as we pray for their daily bread, we pray, Lord, also for our daily bread, just as you taught us to pray, that you continue to provide for each one of us who are here. Lord, thank you for caring about us in that way. But Lord, we also know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we pray, Lord, this morning as we center ourselves upon your word, please, Lord, speak to us, encourage us, teach us, show us who you are. Thank you, Lord. We commit this time into your hands. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. God is my co-pilot, reads the bumper sticker. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) Perhaps God is our maker who knows we are at our best when we center ourselves completely upon him. We are made in his image. We are meant to reflect and enjoy God forever. And he is discontent to be an accessory to our lives. God is not like optional floor mats, a nice cosmetic addition if you can afford it. God is not like a rendition of the star-spangled banner before a football game, a moment of sentiment on Sunday followed by the real game of life that we live Monday through Saturday. Nor is God like the oil in the engine that makes our journey, whether we're headed in the right direction or the wrong direction, smoother. No, God is too magnificent, too transcendent, too glorious to be an ornamental extra to our lives. Uh, In the book of Exodus, as God is revealing himself to the people of Israel, to the Hebrew people, 
he is revealed as more like a black hole, pulling in everything that he wants into himself. He's more like a raging fire, unable to be ignored or pushed off to the corner. He's more like the vehicle taking his people to his desired destination. He is not the co-pilot in any way, shape, or form, but the captain of our souls and the centerpiece of our lives. Now, in the passage in front of us today, Moses is going to continue his interaction with God. We started it last week when he encountered God at the bush that was burning, yet not consumed. Uh, He's heard, at this point, God's call, uh, that he would be the instrument that God would use to deliver God's people from Pharaoh's oppression. And he received God's promise that it would be effective, that it would work, that at one point, he and the people of Israel would worship God on the mountain, that they would be set free. But Moses, in our passage today, is growing more and more reluctant. Have you ever grown reluctant to be obedient to God? And in this passage, he's going to learn more about God, the one who longs to be at the center of his people. So let's start by reading in verse 13 to 15 of chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses in verse 15, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Having heard that God would go with him into Egypt, Moses here in this little three-verse cluster, ask God in a roundabout way about his name. Uh, It's challenging to decipher the nature of Moses' question. You know, what is your name? They're going to want to know who sent uh, me to you. Had Israel completely forgotten God during those hundreds and hundreds of years of slavery, slavery and captivity in Egypt? Was there a special name or a special knowledge of God that acted like a password that Moses was supposed to use for the people of Israel that seemed credible to the Hebrews that Moses himself did not know? Or was Moses, like I think he was, playing the asking for a friend card? You know, like, God, I I don't really know about you. I don't really know who you are and what you're like. So asking for a friend, what's your name? What's your character? Who is this being that I am dealing with? Whatever the nature of Moses' question, it's clear that he wondered about opposition in Egypt, not from the Egyptians, but from the Hebrew people. He worried that they would not receive him and wouldn't believe that he'd been in contact with the true and living God. So to remedy this, what he wanted was a further revelation about God. Do you want this? 
Do you want to know who God is? Uh, he wanted to know God's name. Now, that's not like saying to someone that you meet on the street today, what is your name? Uh, that's just a given name, a, 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 a designation to call out an individual. Uh, this, though, is less than what do I call you and a little bit more, what are you like? That's what a name was in biblical times. The events of Genesis are a distant memory at this point. It's been hundreds and hundreds of years, and Moses himself is 80 years old. And having spent 40 years shepherding in the wilderness, his knowledge of God is a little rusty. So he asks for a crash course refresher from God. What is your name? Who are you? What are you like? Now, God's reply is one of the most discussed and analyzed passages in all of Scripture, yet it remains one of the most mysterious passages of Scripture. And I think, personally, that that is intentional from God. When you're driving along on the road of the Bible, and you come across something that makes you go, what? It's intentional. It's like you're hitting a bump in the road that you're supposed to look back and say, what was that? What did I just hit? And in a sense, that's what's happening here. God replies to Moses when Moses says, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. You know, if you're sitting here today and you're like, oh, word, amen, got it. <laughs> you're fooling yourself. <laughs> it's, a, it's an enigmatic kind of answer from God. By the way, though, this question that Moses is asking and the answer that God begins to give him it is what the book of Exodus is all about. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh's gonna ask this question, who is the Lord? And the Lord is gonna show him who he is. And by the end of the book, Moses is going to be tucked into the cleft of the rock and God is going to say, I'm not gonna show you my glory, but I'll declare to you my name. That's even better. I am merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, showing mercy to thousands judging, however, to the third and fourth generation. So God in this book is revealing himself to his people and revealing himself to us. After he said, I am who I am, God said in verse 14, say this to the Hebrews, I am has sent me to you. But then there was more that God said about his name. In verse 15, he said, say this, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. He said, this is my name. Now, as I said, there's been a lot of discussion about the way that God responded to Moses, but the question remains, what is God's name? Well, if you're to break it down in this passage, it appears that God's name is I am which he explains first by saying, I am who I am. And then second, that his name is, I am the God of the promises I made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, the, the first answer is grammatical. I am who I will be. I will be who I am. I am, I'm unchangeable. I'm outside of time. I'm the God of the past and the present and the future. But the second portion is connected to his promises. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm still with you, fulfilling my ancient promises. All I said I would do to raise up a deliverer who would rescue the world will be done. That's who I am. I am that God. Now, in the context of this conversation, 
God is saying more than that he always exists, but that he's committed to being with his people, being whatever they need. You know, Moses had just asked God the question, we looked at this last week, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And in a sense, what God is saying here is, it doesn't really matter who you are, Moses. It doesn't really matter what you are, Moses. What matters is I am with you, and I am everything that you need for this task. Uh, The Hebrews, of course, were struggling. How would they escape? Not because of Moses, but because of God, who is, who is with them and for them and planning out a future and a hope for them. This is why I say, in this first movement, that God is not an ornamental extra, but is in every situation the key active ingredient. I think that's what you could say about God being the I am. One scholar called this the isness of God. He just is. He is what is needed and required in the moment. He is the inexhaustible God, the I am. Now, in the book of Genesis, uh, the titles that God gave for himself were numerous. You know, some in Genesis had given God names. Hagar called him El Roy, which means the God who sees. Uh, Abraham called him El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. Uh, He also called God Yahweh Jireh, the God who provides. Uh, Genesis speaks of God as creator, as God most high, as the eternal God. But now God says, I'm a lot more than just those titles. They all point to my truest identity. All those titles were like the sides of a great mountain, but I am the mountain. I am seeing, almighty, providing, creator, most high and eternal. I am what is required for my people. And the beautiful thing is that when Jesus came along, he was brazen enough to adopt this title for himself saying at one point in reference to himself before Abraham was, I am, in John 8, 58. And all throughout John's gospel, Jesus presented himself as what is required for his people. He'd say, I am the bread of life who satisfies the deepest hunger inside of you. I am the light of the world that exposes every human heart. I am the door to the sheep pen, so I keep my people and I guard them from predators. I am the good shepherd who knows and defends and feeds and leads my flock. I'm the living water, the one who can transform the barren wasteland of spiritual lifelessness into a garden of grace. I am the resurrection and the life, the one who will restore humanity and redeem a decaying world through my cross. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And he said, I am the true vine that brings vitality to all who are connected to me. Again, what you are not, Jesus is saying, I am. I am inexhaustibly enough for you. Now, in thinking about this, I think we should ask the question, what, what should this inexhaustible enoughness of God, what should that do to us? 
You know, God said that this was his name forever. This wasn't just his name back in Exodus. This is his name for all time. This is who God is for all time. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we've been in his presence for 10,000 years, and there's no sun or no temple in his new world because he is our light and he dwells in our midst, we will know of him like this. We will know of him as the great I am the centerpiece of everything, the inexhaustible God that we can never tire of. And in this life, when every person that we know, every experience that we have, and every pleasure we taste is exhaustible, we must remember the inexhaustible God. He is what we need. In a way that nothing in the kingdoms of men can provide, God delivers. So he is the inexhaustible God. Now, I'd love to just camp out on that little statement from God for the rest of our morning, but I've chosen a quick pace through Exodus, so let's continue on looking in verse 16 to 22. He goes on to say to Moses, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Okay, here God gives Moses the plan. Uh, everything that he just said, everything we just read is actually just an overview of Exodus 5 to 12, uh, so much so that uh, everything that we just read could have then at the end said, and that's what happened because that's what happened. Uh, Moses was supposed to go to the elders of Israel and tell them uh, what God had said and what he'd seen and what God had promised. Uh, they would listen to Moses, at least initially, and then again, eventually. So Moses would go, he said in verse 18, to the king of Egypt with a request to go three days' journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, Pharaoh would firmly reject their request even just for what sounded like a week off for religious practices. That was evidence of a hard heart, God said. So God promised to, verse 20, stretch out his hand and strike Egypt with wonders. And after that, Pharaoh, he said, will let them go. And uh, when he does let them go, God said, the Egyptians would welcome the plunder of their silver and gold and clothing perhaps as back pay for generational slavery and the oppression that the Hebrew people had suffered. Uh, through all the plagues, 
everything would be reversed. Pharaoh and the Egyptian society would be pushed down while God and the Hebrews would emerge on top, plunderers of the greatest empire on earth at that time. Uh, It seems to me that we're meant to see the God of the Exodus as the God who reverses the natural order of things. That's our God. He is always the God of the great reversal. He takes the worst the world offers and uses it for his purposes. Now, now at this point in the story, did the Hebrew people have a great example of this in their history? They did, didn't they? Uh, They could have remembered the story of their ancestor, Joseph, betrayed by his brothers as a teenager uh, in the last third of the book of Genesis, he quietly ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh, becoming one of the most powerful men in the world. And eventually, he and his brothers reconciled. They were reunited along with their father, Jacob, and they became a family there in Egypt once again. And after Jacob died, Joseph's brothers began to wonder if Joseph would exact revenge on them now that their father was dead. The answer, though, was not at all. Joseph knew something powerful. They had an evil design, but God had a good design in all the evil that they had done to him. They had an evil purpose, but God had a good purpose. So he assured them in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But we have a greater revelation than they did that God is the originator of the great reversal. Not only do we know how the book of Exodus ends, but we know what it ultimately points towards. The great Exodus provided by the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate in the great reversal. Think of it, the enemies had a purpose in the cross, but God had a greater purpose purpose in the cross. Satan had his design for the cross, but so did God. God meant it for good. For example, the the cross was meant to stop Jesus's message. Think about that. The, The religious leaders saw what Jesus was doing, saw his popularity, and said, we need to put a stop to the things he is saying. But the cross became the very message that we declare for thousands of years afterwards. The cross was designed to stop a movement. This figure named Jesus gaining popularity in the north of Israel. We need to put a stop to that. The Jewish leaders and the Romans fell. But God used the cross to create a movement that will reverberate through all of eternity. The cross was designed to bring shame. The Romans had perfected the medium of the cross as a way to bring humiliation, not just upon the person being crucified, but upon the people that the Romans were oppressing. But God meant the cross to bring billions of people out of shame and into the glorious acceptance of God. The cross was designed, of course, for death, The ultimate goal of the cross was the death of its victim, but God meant it for life. The cross was designed to keep 
Christ's message from our ears, but God meant it to put the message in our hearts. The cross made the way for the message to get past our ears and into our hearts, just like prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Joel had predicted. The, the cross is the ultimate in God's great reversal program. I, I, uh, I'll let you guys know a little guilty pleasure that I have. I get a kick out of bloopers. Like I just love seeing people fall down and I, I love seeing, and one of my favorite forms of a blooper is to see like a news report that just goes wrong, like live TV that just goes wrong. I get a kick out of it. It's an evil part of my soul and I'm praying about it. But, and I, I saw this one that just cracked me up so much. It was in some community. It might've been in Northern California somewhere, but the report, it was a field reporter. And he was giving a report because there had been a mountain lion sighting in a local neighborhood. And he was standing at the site that this mountain lion had been seen. And he's just all into it. And he's like, and I am standing at the very spot where the mountain lion has been sighted. And then he panned, he moved to his right and he held out his hand like this to show the audience this spot. And as he moved his body, there, a little teeny house cat had just moved and <laughs> sat right there. <laughs> and he's like, that's not it. It was bigger, you know. <laughs> that, that's like our God. He's just the God of the great reversal. The, the most terrible events, the greatest enemies, the worst the enemy can do. He's this God who is able to reverse all of it. And we, we see the cross of Christ as the ultimate example of that. Because of Christ's death and burial and resurrection, a great reversal has occurred, is occurring, and will occur. And one, way, one day we'll discover, like the Pevensey children in the Chronicles of Narnia, that all our life and all our adventures in this world were only the cover and the title page and that God has brought us into his great story that goes on and on forever. The great reversal will come. And God is showing the people of Israel this is happening. Okay, the last thing I want you to see from our passage is in chapter 4, where I'm going to talk about how God is the ultimate power. Uh, Moses answered God in chapter 4, verse 1. He said, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, verse six, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand, so he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, verse eight, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. 
So here in this movement, Moses continues his campaign to get out of his mission. <laughs> uh, maybe he started out with true humility when we saw last week, God, who am I to do this? Uh, now he seems like he's drifting into cowardice and maybe a little disrespect too. Uh, he, he grasps at straws and he tells God, the Hebrews will not believe me. They will not listen to me and they will deny that God has appeared to me. Uh, we're tempted to lose patience with Moses at this point, but I think it's important to note that God does not lose patience with Moses at this point. An interesting study for you to do would be to be thinking in the book of Exodus about the times when God does get angry as opposed to the times he doesn't get angry. I propose to you what you'll probably find is that he gets angry a lot later than you and I would, and he gets angry about different things than you and I would likely get angry about. Uh, so God doesn't lose patience, but he gives Moses three signs. Now, uh, he calls them signs. Signs are just like they sound. They're, they're, they're a thing that is meant to point to something else. Uh, a, a sign is meant to tell you about something that is happening. So the first sign that God gave Moses was that his staff would turn into a serpent, or his staff, his staff would turn into a snake. Now, uh, Pharaoh, you guys probably know this, Pharaoh identified with serpents. Uh, think of the common cobra-like headdress of Egyptian pharaohs. So the first sign, it might have said something about God's power over Pharaoh. Uh, the second sign that God gave Moses was that his hand turned leprous and then was healed after putting it inside his cloak. He puts it in once, it turns leprous, he puts it in again, and it's clean. Uh, Moses, when he uh, threw his staff on the ground and it turned into a snake, I love it. He runs away from that. Uh, but obviously he couldn't run away from his own leprous hand. He's like, God, what, what, what are we doing with this? Uh, now this might have been uh, a sign of God's uh, power over human health. He is certainly going to touch the Egyptians in this category. And the final sign that God gave Moses was that he would turn uh, some water from the Nile River into blood. Uh, it was the one sign, of course, that Moses couldn't practice in that moment. This conversation is happening far away from the Nile River. Uh, but it stood as a clear sign of God's judgment. Uh, Pharaoh had turned the Nile into a river of blood when he commanded Hebrew baby boys be thrown into it to die. And now God is declaring judgment on the very life source of the people of Egypt. The first plague is going to be the turning of the Nile River into blood. Uh, they thrived as a people. They prospered as a people because of the nutrients that the Nile brought, the water that the Nile brought to their otherwise arid landscape, and now God would judge it. So God is presented here as the ultimate authority over world powers like Pharaoh, over bodily health, and life and death itself. And since God is more powerful than any earthly power, more powerful than all worldly systems, more powerful than, than even sickness and death, uh, we should worship, respect, and honor God, but we should also look to him for the exodus from all these painful entrapments, you know, terrible world powers or sickness and death. We, we look to him to be our deliverer. Now, the Egyptians had attributed their success and their prosperity to all the wrong things. 
but God was going to cripple them in a way that would have driven them and every other nation watching these cataclysms to God. And perhaps these introductory signs should have prepped them to turn to the living God who had real authority over the elements that they thought other gods had authority over. But Moses goes on in verse 10 and said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, verse 11, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Uh, kind of God's just describing what, it's, what a prophet is like. Like, there's God talks to the prophet who talks to the people. And take, verse 17, in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And with that, the conversation was over. God was done. He's like, take your staff, get out of here. <laughs> Don't, no more excuses. Okay, here in this last little movement for the morning, uh, Moses offered his final objections to God's calling. Uh, first, uh, what he said to God, he said, God, my speaking ability is not up to the task. You know, they say that the fear of public speaking is one of our greatest, uh, most common fears. But it's funny to me because Moses put together quite an eloquent speech to declare his inability to eloquently speak. You know, it just sounds really nice. So God reminded him that he's the ultimate power by reminding Moses that he made everything, including man's mouth and the ability to speak. He's like, Moses, I can help you. Uh, he, he promised Moses, I'll empower you. But that's when Moses finally came out with it. He didn't want to go. He says, oh my Lord, verse 13, please send someone else. This is his fifth objection, if you're keeping score at home. And uh, God was angry at this point with Moses. Uh, like I said earlier, you'd probably have been angry with Moses too. Uh, you might have even had some unholy feelings towards Moses at this point, but God's anger was righteous. What was happening here is that Moses was no longer speaking out of fear, but out, out of disobedience, and God wasn't here for that. Uh, too much was at stake. This wasn't just Moses' little life. This was God's whole program on earth that was at stake. Israel's survival was important because the witness of Israel to the nations and the Israelite Messiah that would come from this Hebrew people, they were all hanging in the balance in this moment. And Moses is like, I don't really want to be a part of it. Please send somebody else to do it. Moses had to go. And so, of course, God is angry. He's got a plan and a program, and he's looking for people to say yes to his mission. So God told Moses that his older brother Aaron would be his mouthpiece in verse 14. Just as prophets spoke for God, so Aaron would speak for Moses, and God would be with both of them. Now, I've been saying in this last movement, chapter four, that God is seen as the ultimate power, and he's seen as the ultimate power in this last little thing too, because 
He tells Moses that he can speak just fine through a bumbler or a stutterer. It's hard to know what Moses is trying to say, like I have a speech impediment or something like that. And he's saying that he will speak through both Moses and Aaron, but he's also presented as the ultimate power because I don't know if you caught this, but he's already prepared for Moses' pushback. He, he says to Moses, Moses is like, I can't speak, I can't do it. And God says, behold, Aaron is already coming. That's how cool God is. He's like, this is the plan. You do it. And Moses is like, I can't, I don't want to, I don't want to. And God says, this is the plan. Aaron will do it. And I've been preparing for both of these scenarios. Aaron is already on his way. It's not like God in that moment is like, okay, now I'll go talk to Aaron. I'll have, give him his own little burning bush experience. He's, he's already doing it. And, and I wanted to point that out because this provision for Moses' resistance, this shows that God is powerful enough not to institute plan B, but to author a new plan A. That's who God is. He's not the author of plan B. He's the continual author of plan A because he is the ultimate power. And my question for you is, can, can you trust God in that way? Can you trust that God will use you? Can you trust him to work out his perpetual plan A? Can you believe him for that? So in thinking about this whole passage, um, there's, a, there's a portion that comes later when God organizes the people of Israel. He gives them instructions on building the tabernacle. I've been telling you, God is going to give them exodus to bring them out so that he can bring them into himself. It's not just freedom for freedom's sake, but freedom so that he can draw them into a relationship with himself. And I think I could say it like this. He's drawing them out of Egypt into himself so that he can send them out again. I think in one sense you could say, what God is doing is day six and day seven of creation. Day six, he says, after he creates humanity, go into all the world, be fruitful and multiply and subdue it. Now we have the great commission from Jesus to go into all the world and to make disciples. But then on day seven, it says that God rested from his work. And what that day was meant to signify was I'm bringing these people I've made into enjoying me and fellowshipping with me. And the Christian life is both of those things. It is God setting us free over and over again to draw us into himself so that, not just so that we can have little special times with God until we die, but so that we can then be sent out by him. And that's what Israel was supposed to do. They were supposed to build this tabernacle and be a light to the nations around them of what it looks like to walk with God. And when, when they built that tabernacle, uh, God told them that they were to organize themselves all around that tabernacle while they sojourned. Three tribes of the south, three tribes to the west, tr three tribes to the east, and three tribes to the north. The tabernacle was supposed to be the very center of things. All of this meant that God, he was located at the center of his people. And in our passage today, God appears to Moses as discontent to be outside the camp, outside our lives, an ornamental extra to life. He is meant to be at the center of his people, the focus of our lives. He's everything that we're not. He's altogether sufficient. He's our ever-present and 
uh, interventionist for good. He's inexhaustibly enough. He originates the great reversal that we need. He's the ultimate power of powers, even over death. And he's the sovereign Lord who works out his plans. And he longs to be at the center of our lives. And so my exhortation before we take communion today is let's adore him as he is. Let's not allow him, as so many have, to become an ornamental extra to life. I, I own a Bible. I, I, I'm at a church every once in a while, but let's make him the one on whom we center ourselves, the foundation upon whom we build, the God who we worship. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.